My guess is none of us recognize this man. Um, I'll bet if I give you his name, it still doesn't ring any bells. His name is Ron Wayne. Uh, and that does, you know, he's just not famous. Now, two people he was acquainted with, some of you will recognize and more of you will know when I tell you their names. These two guys are named Steve. These are old pictures. Anybody recognize either of them? This is Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and, and they are usually known as the two men who founded the Apple Computer Company. And they did, but... Did you know when the Apple Computer Company was originally founded, there were actually three co-founders. The third one was a guy named Ronald Wayne. Aside from having two first names, Ronald Wayne uh, was qualified this way. The two Steves knew him from their work at Atari. Remember Atari? <laughs> they were at all worked at Atari. The Steves wanted to found this new vent computer venture and they decided they needed like an adult. And Ronald Wayne like had a house and a checking account and a little bit of money. And so the original Apple contract had three co-founders. The Steves each got a 45% stake and Ronald Wayne got 10% of the Apple computer company. He even, uh, he even made the first Apple logo. You picture it? I'll bet not, because it looked like that. that is, this is Sir Isaac Newton, and there's a little apple there. It didn't last very long. Unfortunately for Ronald Wayne, he decided a couple of months in he wanted out, and so he sold his 10% of the Apple computer company for 800 bucks. But later, there was another settlement between Ron and the Steves just to ensure that, that Ron wouldn't come back later and say he was owed more. They, they gave him another settlement, 1,500 bucks. So he sold 10% of Apple for $2,300. He's still alive. Today, that 10% would be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $95 billion. He did keep his copy of the original contract, the charter. But he sold that in the 90s for 500 bucks. In 2011, someone else auctioned it for $1.6 million. Ronald Wayne is a guy who is familiar with missed opportunities. But he won't be the last guy. This morning, we're going to open a new book in our Bibles. But First and Second Samuel really were, were just one story, one, one book originally. So we're going to treat them like that. We're just going to keep going. And where we open, we've, we've been at the end of 1 Samuel, we've really been reading two stories. We've been hopping back and forth between 
the story of King Saul and the story of David. And their stories have been happening uh, two stories simultaneously. David had moved to Philistia um, and, and uh, got himself into a jam. And while he was there, Saul, King Saul, saw the Philistines mobilizing to invade Israel. And so King Saul went to visit a, a spiritist, a medium, a witch, something uh, to try to get some advice as to how he could survive. He couldn't. While he was doing that, at about the same time, David and his men were returning home to their home of Ziklag to find it destroyed. And their families kidnapped. And so while David and his men are fighting the Amalekites to rescue their families, Saul and his sons are being defeated by the Philistine army. And last week, at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul and his sons were killed. And so all that stuff was happening kind of simultaneously. And today our two stories merge back into one. And we're going to follow primarily David now. But this morning, our one story is the story of two men who missed opportunities. We're going to read this together and then see what we can learn from 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to read the first 16 verses. They read this way. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground. He prostrated himself, so he got on his face before David. Then David said, from from where have you come? And he said to David, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, not great. The people have fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. Verse 5. So David said to the young man who told him these things, David said, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who had told him this stuff said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen of the Philistines pursued Saul closely. And when Saul looked behind him, he saw me, and he called out, and I said, Here I am, what do you need? And Saul said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then Saul said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. Verse 10, so this man says, I stood beside Saul and I killed him because I knew that he could not survive after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, David, to my Lord. Then David took hold of David's clothes and tore them, and all of David's men did the same thing. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. When David said to the young man who had told him, where are you from? Um, And 
That man answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. And David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go, cut him down. So that guy struck the Amalekite who died. David said to him, your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointing. The Lord's anointing, that's not what it says. The Lord's anointed, which is something way different. So the curtain rises on the book of our book of 2 Samuel. And to see David and his men, they're in Ziklag, which has been their hometown for a year and a half or thereabouts. They're trying to put their lives back together because the place had been destroyed. And on day three of the cleanup effort, here comes this man riding into camp none of them have ever seen before. And he is... He's bearing the physical signs of obvious mourning uh, that were used in that culture. His clothes were torn, and he was either putting dust on his head or it was already there. He had dirt on his head. That's what they did when they were mourning. Us, we just posted on Facebook like a normal person. They did that stuff. So... David, he doesn't know who this guy is. We've been told that this guy is from Saul's camp. He was in the Israelite army. David doesn't know that. So in verse 3, he asks him, where are you from? And he tells David what we already know. I I got away from the Israelite camp. So David urgently, he knows this battle was coming. He was in line to go fight in it, although on the wrong side. Long story from a previous sermon. So David, with urgency, please tell me, how did the battle go? And this man says, not great. Everyone else, either ran, everyone from Israel either ran away like I did, or they were killed. And for the first time, David hears the bad news. Not only has Israel been soundly defeated by the Philistines, King Saul is dead. This, this man tells him, Jonathan, his son, is dead also. Uh, this young man probably knows nothing of David's good friendship with Jonathan. Maybe he does, I don't know. He's probably just telling David that the king and the, the, the heir to the throne are all dead. Are you familiar with the stages of grief? What's the first stage of grief? You know, denial, right? You get awful news. The first thing your brain says is, nah, can't be. I think that's what David does. Um, David says in verse 5, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Why does he ask that question? He wants proof because without proof, I think he's not going to believe it. So, this young man is going to give what he says is his eyewitness testimony. And he's going to produce two pieces of physical evidence that all seem to corroborate his story. Verse 6, or beginning in verse 6, this young man says, here's how I went down. Uh, During my hasty retreat, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa and I ran across Saul. There he was, leaning on his spear. That detail gives some uh, 
some believability to his story because everyone knows, especially David, Saul always had that spear with him. Says, I was running by, King Saul called out to me, said, hey, who are you? And I said, hey, what can I do for you, king? I'm an Amalekite at your service. And king says, I want you to kill me. And then the Hebrews here says something like, Saul said, like, I'm not dead yet, but I kind of wish I was. I'm in the throes of agony, but I'm still alive. He doesn't have to explain why he doesn't want to fall in, alive into the hands of the Philistines. And so this guy says, Saul asked me to kill him. And so I did. And then this man produces the two pieces of physical evidence that seem to prove he's telling the truth. He shows him King Saul's crown. And our Bibles usually say bracelet. It would probably be more of an armband like, like this thing here. That's an Egyptian one though. So it's, but David would have recognized these things. He knows they came from King Saul. And so he says, that's how, that's how I know. That's how Saul died. Now, all of a sudden, if you've been reading along, all of a sudden, as readers, we have a problem understanding our text. Because what we just read about how King Saul died is different from what we read last week about how King Saul died. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, in the first few verses, we were told the story of how King Saul died. There was no Amalekite. Uh, Saul killed himself. What we read last week, Saul was injured by an arrow or arrows. He knew he couldn't get away. His position was about to be overrun. He didn't want to fall into the hands of the Philistines. He asked someone to kill him, but it wasn't some random Amalekite. It was his armor bearer, someone David presumably would have known. He asked his armor bearer to to end his life. The armor bearer is like, no way. So Saul did himself in. So what gives? How did King Saul die? Well, there are some good attempts to harmonize these two stories, which just means to explain how they both can be true. The best one goes like this. What we read last week was true. King Saul couldn't get away. He decided to do himself in, but it turns out King Saul couldn't even do that right. Uh, he survived that attempt on his own life. And then this Amalekite came back and finished what Saul, what the, what Saul tried to start. But I don't think that's true. Um, I think there's an easier explanation, and that's this. Someone is lying. The, uh, we believe the Bible to be inerrant, right? There's no mistakes. But that doesn't mean the people that appear in the Bible were inerrant. They very much were not. So like, uh, I think someone's lying here. So like uh, Dr. Dale Davis and his commentary uh, at this point, he says, as readers, we have a choice to make. Who do we think is lying? The, the author of 1 Samuel and narrator writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or some random Amalekite that happened along the way. I think the easiest way to understand this is this Amalekite's lying. He's trying to make himself seem a little more of a hero. Here's how I think this went down. 
Saul killed himself like we read last week. This Amalekite was in the Israelite army. When they realize they're about to be overrun like everyone else, he hightails it out of there. Just so happens as he's trucking away from the front, he runs across King Saul. And very quickly, he does what the Philistines are about to do. He loots the corpse. Maybe he thinks, there's no sense the Philistines getting all of this. He's not, he doesn't have time to stop and take everything. But he grabs this bracelet, he grabs the crown, and he continues trucking away to safety. When he gets to safety, he looks at what he's got, and he probably thinks, what am I supposed to do with this stuff now? Like, it's, it's a pretty difficult thing to pawn, right? The crown of the king of Israel. I'm not supposed to have this stuff. I don't know what to do with this. And so, opportunistically, he thinks, what is, what's the best thing I can do with this stuff? How can I get the most benefit out of this? And so he thinks, I know. I'll go find David. I'll present this stuff to David but then, I'll sweeten the story a little bit. I'll tell David, I actually killed Saul. I mean, he could tell how, Saul, how Saul's life ended. Doesn't take Columbo or someone, I think, to figure out what happened there. So he says, I'll tell David, I killed him. And if David, David might think I killed David's greatest rival. Right? Saul's been trying to kill David for chapters and chapters and chapters. Maybe David will think I'm kind of a hero. But even if he doesn't, David might think I did Saul a favor. A mercy killing. Either way, I can't lose. What could possibly go wrong? I think that's what happened. Now at that point, David has just gotten the bad news. Israel was, has been soundly defeated. Most of the royal men of the royal family are dead. And here's this Amalekite. And David does not talk to him for hours and hours and hours. Instead, David falls apart mourning in grief. He mourns Saul and Jonathan and the whole nation of Israel until evening. As you read that, does that, did that seem like a strange interruption to you? It does to me. It doesn't seem like a strange interruption because I think David should uh, schedule his grief better, you know, like you're busy. Um, in fact, David interrupted his conversation. I think I'll interrupt ours. We all are all too familiar with that day where it happens where we receive terrible, unthinkable news and it no longer matters what we had planned that day. You know what we're doing the rest of the day? Mourning. Grieving. We didn't plan it. We can't schedule it. And we can't control it. It just happens. That's what David does. And it's the right response. Do you know that? I want to give you permission to grieve when you get that news. Do you know why it's the right response? 
when someone dies that you love? Because suddenly you are confronted with the victory of one of your greatest enemies. You know, the Bible calls death our enemy. It is. If the world were still perfect, people wouldn't die. Death is separation. My physical death will be when my spirit separates from my body. And there might be someone sad, right? It it just happens because our enemy has won. Now, as Christians, part of our great hope is that someday that enemy will be defeated. Someday, you know, we get this promise. Someday as believers, as Christians, as redeemed people, we are going to stand around and sing together, shout from prophets Hosea and Isaiah. Here's what we're going to say. We're going to stand around and gloat, right? This is believers talking junk to death. That's what we're doing. Someday we will see death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory now? Where, O death, is your sting? Do you know if you're a believer, you are going to stand shoulder to shoulder with others and, and, and scream that and sing that and chant that someday? But today ain't that day. Death has not been fully defeated. You know how I know? Because I still do funerals. Right? And we read, I read that passage at funerals, but we should share some context. <laughs> I agree with Pastor Matt Chandler who, who says when he's at a funeral and without any context, they, they read, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? He wants to stand up and say, death sting is right up there in that box. There it is. The reason we're so sad and we can't control our grief when someone dies is because somehow in our spirit we know it shouldn't be like this. And we're sad about the separation. That's what death is. Praise God we have a hope that death will be the last, the last enemy Christ ever defeats. There'll be no more death one day. That's part of the good news. So what seems strange to me that David falls apart is not because David falls apart. We get that part. What seems strange is why would would David fall apart over Saul? And, And read the text. It doesn't say he's just sad about Jonathan. He grieves Saul and the whole nation of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Why would, why would Saul be worth mourning over? He's been trying to kill you for like 12 chapters. Why mourn over the nation of Israel? Won't Israel be better off having David as its king instead of Saul? And after all, David, shouldn't you kind of be glad? Because I mean, after all, now you can be king. But David, when he's at his best, when he's pursuing after God's heart, David's, David's got the heart we all should want to have. David, David's heart this moment matches 
His, he'll have a future son who will write a future book. His name's Solomon. The book's Proverbs. And, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, David's son one day will say this. And this is like David. He matches right here. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. When your enemy stumbles, don't let your heart rejoice. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased. And turn his wrath away from him. And I think we're supposed to see and toward you. So David falls apart. He mourns. Because somehow I think David understands in the bigger picture, all this death is a victory for his enemies. The Philistines on earth. But death, it's like death has won the day. And I think David mourns missed opportunity. Was David going to be king? Yes. Why? God promised. Now, did it have to go down like this? Did Saul have to be a complete wreck of a human being or David wouldn't get to be king? Here's the way God's promises sort of work or one aspect of it. We can absolutely depend on God's promises that he has promised happening, but we have lots of choices we can make between here and there. David mourns the opportunity they had that Saul wasted. What if? What if Saul, like Saul's son Jonathan, had believed God that David's supposed to be the next king? What if Saul, instead of constantly bucking against that and doing everything in his power to keep that from happening, what if Saul had come to repentance and decided, you know what? If God wants David to be king, and remember, Saul admitted he knew that. If God wanted David to be king, why don't I ask God if God's ready for that to happen now? What if, what if Saul went to God and said, God, if you want David to be king, then I want me and my son, I want us to offer the crown to David and we want to serve David as faithfully as David served me. Could that have had an impact for the glory of God and the betterment of the nation of Israel? You better believe it. That's a missed opportunity that's way bigger than Ronald Wayne's $75 billion. David mourns the wreck that is that doesn't have to be. Yes, he mourns Jonathan. More on that next week. But David mourns the missed opportunity that Saul had and the damage that's been done to the nation of Israel because of the poor choices Saul made throughout his entire life. That's why David's heartbroken. This is the story of missed opportunities. Now later that evening, after David has sort of pulled himself back together, he calls this young man who brought the news again and he's ready to respond to this guy. 
uh, to understand. This is another surprise ending, I think, for us reading it. I don't think we expect David to treat this man the way he does. We have to understand verse 13 correctly to understand why David does what he does. David brings the young man back and he asks them this question, where are you from? Does that seem like a strange question to ask at this point? How many times does this guy have to tell David he's an Amalekite? Read back through the story. He's said it multiple times. It's not what David's asking. David is not asking his ethnicity. He's asking for his residency. David knows he was, he's like a, an Amalekite ethnically. He asks him, where you been living? See, Israel has always had, since the day they stepped out of Egypt, Israel's always had people who weren't ethnically Israelite as part of the nation. That's why this man's answer, he says, I'm the son of a foreigner. There's a Hebrew word right there that, that lets us know he's, his, my dad immigrated to Israel. My dad was an Amalekite who moved to Israel. I was born and raised Israelite. That's why he's in Saul's army. He's not a foreign hired mercenary. He's part of the nation doing his duty. And once David clears, David's just making sure before I make a mistake, tell me again where you're from. Born and raised in Israel, though I'm of foreign descent. And as soon as he hears that, David knows then you just, you're a subject of the king you just killed. And that's never okay. David knows this young man took an opportunity he, he, didn't, he didn't have. David is not opportunistic. Did David have opportunities to kill Saul? Yes, on at least two occasions. He never took those opportunities. Did it seem like it might have been a smart opportunity for David to seize on, to kill King Saul? Of course. Why wouldn't David do it? As he said, hey, it is, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointing. God made him king. I'm not going to unmake him king. That's above my pay grade. There's no excuse for me to kill the man God made king. This is still true. We try to illustrate this this way. Let's say one of our former presidents, uh, it learned, deserved to die and was about to die anyway. So let's, Jimmy Carter, he's pro he probably ain't doing great. He's got a bad case of being really old. Let's say Jimmy Carter, uh, it was discovered that he had been committing treason since he got out of the White House. So now he deserves to die, Right? So he's about to die anyway. He's going to be executed. And everyone agrees it's the right thing to happen. Now, what would happen to you if you decided you should be the one to make that happen? That's what happens here. David says, I don't care what your story is. You didn't have any right to kill the king. And David orders a punishment that fits the crime. This Amalekite story is the story of missed opportunity also. If I'm correct about the way he came to be in possession of the crown and the armband, 
All this guy did was overplay his hand. What if he had gone to David and, and bowed down at his feet and said, I shouldn't have these and I'm sad that I do, but I didn't know what else to do. By the time I saw saw Saul, he was already dead. I, I just took these. I don't know if I should have or not, but I want you to have them. He tried, to par, he tried to make himself a little more of a hero. Maybe he could parlay this into a good government job. Here's what I've been dealt. What's the best way I can use this opportunity to advance myself? The wrong way to look at opportunity every single time. Here's what I've been given. What's the best, thing, best way I can advance me? That's all this guy does. Now, we might look at this and say, but man, this, he, he died due to a sin he didn't commit. Not true. It's just not the sin we're thinking of. His, his sin may not have been killing King Saul. His sin was lying about killing King Saul. Remind me, can we control the consequences of our sin? Or sometimes once we sin a sin, can the consequences just sort of get away from us? That's what happens. That's our story. Now, what does it teach us? Other than what we've already discussed, or going back over what we've discussed, I want to leave you these two lessons from this passage. First, there is no greater opportunity in life than seizing the opportunity to take what God has given and use that for his glory and the benefit of other people. There is no greater opportunity than taking what I have been given and asking myself, why have I been given this? David was not opportunistic. Saul and this Amalekite were. Which one do you think we're being taught is better? <laughs> right? There's always a temptation to see life is how can I parlay what I've been given to more for me? It's just the most natural thing in the world. There's no greater opportunity than seeing everything I have, whether it's financial, material, uh, my, my energy, my time, my talents. What has God given me? How can I use it to glorify him, to make him look awesome? and to benefit others. That's the best opportunity there is. And we see two negative examples today, and we're reminded of a positive example in David of that fact. And then we're also reminded today, for we mere human beings, death is our undefeated enemy, but its defeat is coming and is sure. And keeping our mind on the day when death will be fully defeated will help us with number one, making sure that in our minds and in our hearts, the greatest opportunity we have is take what God has given and use it for his glory and the benefit of, of others. Let's go ahead and pray. Sam, I'm going to ask you to leave that up there for communion for a minute. Let's pray, and then we'll turn our hearts toward the table. Our Father, um, we thank you for your word. 
um, even the confusing and obscure parts. Um, Lord, we are uh, in the group this large, the variety of gifts, abilities, blessings, uh, financial resources, uh, amounts of time are so vast and so numerous. God, it's just part of our human condition. We tend to look at what you have given and be sort of opportunistic. How can I take what I have to make more of me? Lord, we know we are headed toward a day when the only regrets we have will be the opportunities we miss to make much of you with what you gave. So Lord, um, as we consider this story, um, help us to consider our, our own lives and the opportunities that you give. May we make much of the Lord Jesus while there is time. And God, as we gather around his table, we pray you'd bless our time uh, commemorating and remember, remembering and celebrating uh, his death while we wait for him to come again. In his name we pray. Amen. When we approach the table, sometimes I think the, the best way to do it is take a look at the passage we have read and like see how Jesus did. If we look at number one, were Jesus more opportunistic do you think there could have been some off-ramps away from the cross available to Jesus given all of his power and abilities and whatever? And he tell his disciples like, well, I could call like a legion of angels to come and like destroy these Romans in like half a second. Jesus understood. I don't have a better opportunity than seizing this opportunity to take what God has given me and using what I have, this life I've been given, to glorify him and to benefit others. And that's what we celebrate at this table. Jesus taking his body, shedding his blood, and giving it up, not because it seemed like the most logical and the smartest, the best use of his time, but because there was no other way to glorify his Father and to benefit us. So let's thank him and remember him while we celebrate this together. Pray with me over the bread. Father God, we're so grateful that you sent your son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, thank you for willingly giving your body to glorify your Father and to benefit us. We know without your sacrifice, we have no chance of appearing righteous in the, in the high courtroom of heaven. So for a few minutes while the bread comes around, we remember what you did on our behalf. And we trust in it as the, the only way by which we might be saved. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.